The word of God from John chapter 17, verses 6 through 17. Jesus prays to his father the night before his crucifixion. I have revealed your name to the people you gave me from the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you, because I have given them the words you gave me. They have received them and have known for certain that I came from you. They believed that you sent me. I prayed for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, because they are yours. Everything I have is yours, and everything you have is mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them is lost, except the son of destruction, so that the scripture may be fulfilled. Now I am coming to you, and I speak these things in the world, so that they may have my joy completed in them. I have given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the, by the truth. Your word is truth. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be. Well, good morning, saints. I am so happy and thrilled, overjoyed indeed, to be here worshiping with you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. I love the church. I love the people of God. And although sometimes when I am uh, away from resurrected, I feel a little homesick, <laughs> but this is not one of those times <laughs> because I have been so warmly welcomed, my wife and I, so warmly greeted, um, I feel at home. So, thank you. Well, this morning I want, I am preaching John 17, 17. That was just read to you. I would like to read the 17th verse just one more time. Short verse. And let me say, excuse me, I'm, I'm a little brain dead this morning, but let me say thank you to my dear, dear friend and brother, Pastor Lewis, whom I love so much in the Lord. I, I, I've only known him a short time, but I feel like he's uh, 
my best friend <laughs> already because he's such a humble man that loves the gospel of Jesus Christ and loves God's people. So I'm forever indebted to uh, Brother Jeff, <laughs> who's also my dearly beloved brother. I can never repay him for connecting me with Pastor Lewis and his precious wife, whom my wife just absolutely adores. <laughs> so, Sojourn, so you're, you're my family. And we invite you to the conference every year because you are family, and family doesn't need to pay to be with family, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> you're invited this year again with no pay, okay? <laughs> John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is true. I want to preach from this theme, Jesus' prayer for his church. Jesus' prayer for his church. It's clear to me when I read the Bible and study the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation, it's clear to me that God wants a holy people. The Lord, who is altogether uh, lovely, desires image bearers like you and I to reflect his glory, to reflect his holiness. The Lord's word to Israel in Leviticus 11.44 declares, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. In the New Testament, the apostle Peter in 1 Peter 1.14 and 15 writes these words as obedient children. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Sometimes in following the Lord Jesus Christ, we, we ask this question, what in the world is God's will for my life? Paul answers that very clearly in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 14, declares, Strive for holiness, for without holiness no one will see the Lord. So holiness is not a matter of secondary importance, it is the one thing without which nothing else matters. God has called us to be holy. And thankfully, we have the perfectly righteous, holy Savior who has actually imputed his righteousness to us. We call that justification because our sin was imputed to him, counted as his. His righteousness is counted as ours. But we must not forget 
sanctification. For sanctification always follows, always flows out of justification. Now, I want to be clear this morning. God does not desire a moral people. He desires a holy people. Now, you may ask, well, what's, what's the difference? Well, there is a, a difference. It is the difference between, for example, the Pharisees, the most zealous of the parties of ancient Judaism during the late Second Temple period. It's the difference between them and the Lord Jesus. They were moral. He was holy. Morality is, a, is the negative concept in that it, it defines itself in terms of what one refrains from doing. So the preoccupation with morality is, uh, is, is the externals. Holiness, by contrast, is the positive and, and, and holistic concept it, it encompasses externals, but uh, the reach of holiness is far more penetrating and far more, far more comprehensive. If we can think of the difference this way, the moral person abstains from wrong actions. The holy person hates the very thought of wrong doing. The moral person is preoccupied by what people perceive him to be. The holy person is consumed with what God wants him to be. The moral person mindlessly adheres to a cold list of do's and don'ts. But the holy person ponders in his heart what brings God the greatest pleasure. The moral person keeps a meticulous record of his good deeds, expecting to win the favor of God. But the holy person grieves that nothing he or she ever does, even for God, is altogether free of sinful and selfish motive. The holy person recognizes every blessing from God as an expression of God's grace. The moral person lives by uh, a self-determined definition of right and wrong and delights to impose that definition of right and wrong on other people. But the holy person yields to the word of God as the final authority, the all-sufficient word of God. Jesus is praying for our sanctification. I want you to notice the context of this prayer. The public ministry of the Son of God, our Lord, is concluding as well as his more intimate ministry with the 11 disciples. Together they leave the upper room and walking by the Judean moonlight, 
they, they make their way to what is a very familiar spot, the Garden of Gethsemane. John indicates, however, that before crossing the Kidron Valley and entering the garden, Jesus lifts up his eyes and prays. Verse 1 of chapter 17. Now, we, we must remember that the, uh, these events occur during Passover week a season in which thousands of lambs are, are, are being sacrificed in the temple. The Jewish historian Josephus indicates the Kidron Brook served as the dumping site for the residual blood of the slaughter, slaughtered animals. So it is quite possible that the setting site of, uh, of this blood, which is, would have been a graphic graphic foreshadowing of, of Christ's own violent death as the ultimate Passover lamb stopped him in his tracks. And Jesus began to pray. The structure of this prayer is easily uh, identifiable in verses 1 through Five, Jesus prays for himself. In verses 6 through 19, Jesus makes a petition for the 11 uh, disciples, Judas having been dismissed. And finally, in verses 20 through 26, his intercession broadens to include all who will come to embrace the apostolic gospel. Note here. The very words of our Lord, Jesus prays for sanctification. Jesus prays for sanctification. And as we think about this in verse 17, I want you to notice first the people Jesus prays for. The people Jesus prays for. Sanctify them. It's clear that this prayer, this petition of our Lord is undeniably and intentionally focused. It is not a petition on behalf of all people everywhere. It reflects uh, a, an appropriate narrowness that was explicitly introduced Actually, in verse 9, in verse 9, referring to his original disciples, he says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. So initially... Jesus makes his request on behalf of those who have been given to him by divine prerogative. But we raise the question, does this prayer request have any bearing on us? Well, take note of verse 20 
I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through his word. If you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, if you're resting in Christ alone, if you've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then what a blessing for you right now. Jesus prays for you. So it includes, it includes us, isn't this wonderful? It includes us because without uh, our high priestly Savior praying, we don't have a chance for holiness. Once again, God desires holiness, not mere morality. So we see first the people Jesus prays for. But I want you to notice, secondly, and let's think about the meaning of sanctification. The meaning of sanctification, because he says, sanctify them in the truth. Now, this particular word here, sanctify, belongs to actually a family of words that speaks of holiness. And we know that the word holy uh, is sometimes used or often used as an adjective uh, for God himself. For example, he is the holy one, the most holy one, the God who is holy, holy, holy. Now, when we think of God's holiness, we, uh, we're not simply saying that God is greater than everyone else or we're not simply saying that God is distinguished by a stature of righteousness altogether unrivaled, although that's true. But holiness is a way of saying that God is transcendent, that God is uniquely set apart and distinct from his creation. So accordingly, people and even things uniquely set apart for God are said to be holy or sanctified. For example, Aaron and his sons were sanctified, set apart for the sacred duty of serving God as priests. The altar on which they offered sacrifice, sacrifices was, was sanctified, uniquely dedicated to God for his purpose. The priestly clothing, they were sanctified garments. In fact, all, all of the furnishings of the temple, of the tabernacle, excuse me, and even the tabernacle itself were sanctified, set apart from everything else for the distinct purpose assigned them by God. My brothers and sisters, this reflects the burden of Jesus when he prays, sanctify them. Set these men apart for your sacred purpose. And what is the purpose in view? It's clear from the context, verse 18, to engage the world for the sake of the gospel. In other words, 
the sanctification for which Jesus prays is sanctification for mission. The context argues this, the immediate context argues this in verses 14 through 16. Let me read it again. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world set apart, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Don't take them out. Sanctify them. Set them apart for mission, that they may engage the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to be worldly in the right way. We need to be worldly in the sense of mission. Engage them Engage the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what does Jesus mean by the term sanctify? Set these men apart for the sacred purpose of sending them into the world. Simply put, when we think of sanctify, we must note that we are entirely his. We belong to the Lord. So all that we do and possess are his. It means that we are set apart to be devoted to God for his glory. To serve him. Now, beloved, uh, if this is the commission of the 11 disciples, then this commission has become ours. It's incumbent upon us to recognize the sacred nature of this calling. Sanctify them in the truth. I tell resurrected sometimes before I'm getting ready to make a statement. This might hurt a little, a little bit. Sanctify them in the truth. Consequently, if if we have no meaningful engagement with the world for the sake of the gospel, we're actually abdicating our identity as the set-apart followers of Jesus Christ. We see the meaning of sanctification. Notice, thirdly, the instrument. The instrument of sanctification. I love the Bible. It's the most amazing book in the world, isn't it? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is true. You know, earlier this same evening, J. 
Jesus distinctively referred to himself as the truth. That familiar verse in John chapter 14, uh, verse 6, Jesus declared earlier that same evening, I am the way and the truth and the life. Now Jesus says, uh, praise, sanctify them in the truth. When we read here in John 17, the words, the petition of our Lord, we need to understand something very important. We need to understand that while, while Jesus is setting forth the scriptures as the efficient instrument of sanctification, their intention is not adequately comprehended until we appreciate the Christ-centered emphasis of the scriptures. Follow me. The scriptures are the truth about this one who is the truth, namely Christ. Therefore, therefore, the experience that uh, effectively sanctifies the people of God for the sacred work of being sent into the world is immersion into the word of God, the word of God that is distinctively Christ-centered. In other words, we can only know true sanctification when we see the truth that points to the one who is the truth, Christ himself. When, when, when the Spirit illumines our mind to see the beauty and the glory and the preciousness and the treasure of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Notice as well how Jesus amplifies uh, this petition, the statement, in verse 17, he does not merely say, your word is true. He says, your word is truth. Is there any difference, you ask? Well, it is an accurate statement to assert that the Bible is true. That's, that's an accurate statement, of course. Uh, it is. The, the problem is that uh, such an assertion does not communicate uh, uh, comprehensively and ultimately. See, if Jesus just said or claimed here, your word is true, uh, doing so would leave him susceptible to criticism. On what basis, in other words, is the Bible true? What is the criteria by which you test the truthfulness of Scripture if he just says your word is true? So, that would leave open the possibility of a higher standard of truth to which the Bible merely conforms. But by contrast, beloved, when Jesus says your word is truth, he, 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 he certainly infers the accuracy and reliability of the scripture, but he, also, but he does so by clearly affirming the scriptures as the ultimate definition of truth. So the scriptures are the criteria, the standard, 
and the reference point by which everything else is to be measured. How do we know the Bible, your word is the truth because the word declares itself to be the truth? Particularly in this context, they are defined, the scriptures are, are defined as the instrument of sanctification. Just listen to what the word says about itself. Psalm 19, 7 and 8, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, uh, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, that's simply talking about Holy Scripture. Listen to the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 4, 12. For the word of God is, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the, the division of soul and of spirit and of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Listen to Paul in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scriptures breathe out by God, and profitable, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. This is the scripture's own testimony about itself. Your word is truth. Sanctification is the aim, then God's instrument of choice is the Christ-centered scriptures. Just think with me for a moment about the theological challenges the disciples would face if they were not sanctified through the truth. What in the world will they say when there's a denial of the resurrection of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15. How would they deal with the denial of the, do, the, the doctrine of justification by faith alone that was prevalent uh, among the Galatians? What would they say over against the Gnostic heresy uh, in 1 John, uh, what would they say to correct the denials of the full de deity or the full humanity of Jesus? How in the world would they rectify the Corinthian confusion regarding the Holy Spirit if they're not sanctified by means of the truth? But not only theological challenges, what about the ethical challenges? What in the world would they say to the um, church in regards to the man who had become sexually intimate with his father's wife in 1 Corinthians 5? What would they say to the uh, 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 Christians in Thessalonica who refuse to work because they are uh, waiting on the Lord's return in 2 Thessalonians 3? 
What about Christian husbands who exploit their wives or Christian wives who refuse their husband's leadership? What will they say if they're not sanctified in the truth? What will they say to parents who uh, refuse to assume proper responsibility for their children and, and children who defy their parents? What will they say if they're not sanctified through the truth? See, saints, it will be the strength of their grip on the truth or the strength of the truth's grip on them that will determine their measure of success. Think about personal holiness. Isaiah declares in Isaiah 55, 10 and 11, for us the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Well, I love that God's word sanctifies because it conveys divine life from heaven. Just as rain falls from the clouds and waters the soil so that life springs forth. The only way for you and I to grow in holiness, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, to grow in becoming more and more like Christ, to, 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 to grow and commit ourselves more and more to the regular study of God's word. We don't have a chance. We don't have a chance for holiness apart from sanctification in the truth. Well, we pastors and preachers, we're always, and I'm talking about real pastors like what you have here, okay? <laughs> we insist on expositional preaching. All our classes and studies, we, we in discipleship, we must be steeped in scripture, right? Our congregational music has to be a vehicle through which to communicate the truth, right? What's up with us? It's this prayer. The truth is the divinely appointed instrument by which a Christian is sanctified. It is because uh, effectiveness in, in our mission is altogether dependent upon the, the degree to which we are sanctified by or in the truth. So, we must never be theological without being missional. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. But what is equally true is this, we cannot be missional without being theological. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You see, the people Jesus prayed for here, we see the meaning of sanctification. We see the instrument. Lastly and finally, notice the God of sanctification. 
Jesus is clearly praying here. He's, this is his high priestly prayer. He's clearly making a request. Um, uh, I, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm about to say something quite, that's, that's quite clear to you. Or I'll raise a question that is quite, the answer to the question is very clear to you. To whom is he praying? Well, according to verse 11, Jesus says, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So when Jesus prays, sanctify them in the truth, your word is true. He's praying to the Father, right? Well, that, 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 that's obvious. I hear you in your mind. <laughs> but I want to make a point here. Sanctification is brought about by the instrumentality uh, of the word of God. However, the actual effectiveness, the actual effectiveness of the word requires a work that only God can perform. The word of God is the instrument. We, we, we affirm that without hesitation. We must equally affirm that God himself is the agent of sanctification. We affirm that the word of God possesses a resident life, but by itself, it does not beget life. For a person to be sanctified by the word, God himself. See how important this prayer is? See how important it is that we pray this as well? God himself must make the word Sexual in our hearts. We worship God. The word of God is the scalpel. But you cannot get surgery done with just the scalpel. You need a surgeon. You need a surgeon. The word of God is the tool, but you can't build anything with a tool if you don't have a craftsman. We need a craftsman. The word of God is the instrument. There's an ins instrument right behind me. But without my brother, without, without the artist, it's just sitting there. We need the artist. It's very clear as Jesus prays, he communicates to us that sanctification will never happen apart from the word. But it is equally clear that he communicates to us in this prayer that God and God alone is the agent of sanctification. Boy, salvation is by grace from start to finish, isn't it? I'm glad we never have to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. 
office would be like on a wall that's all ice sliding down. You remember, I'm sure you, in your Bible reading, you've read in Ezekiel 37, the Valley of Dry Bones. You know, the Dry Bones Church? They were dead. And God raised the question, can these bones live? Said that to Ezekiel, can these bones live? And boy, Ezekiel had the best pastoral answer you will ever hear. Lord, you know. God commanded him to prophesy and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. That's what Ezekiel did. He preached. And as he kept preaching, uh, the bones uh, uh, came alive, uh, stood on their feet, and they became an exceedingly great army. But there was a wind that came through. Spirit of God. May we continually place ourselves under the word. May we be encouraged that our Savior is making intercession for us. You know, I think about Peter. I said, Peter, you'll deny me. Peter said, not me. The rest of these guys, not me. You have the wrong one, Jesus. Keep moving. He says, yeah, you'll deny me three times, but I prayed for you that your faith does not fail. May we be encouraged that we have a praying high priest who's always praying for us. And we're going to make it because of him and for his glory. Sanctify them through the truth. Your word is true. Father, we are so grateful, so thankful for your word, for your unwavering love, for your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. Lord, unto us. Morning by morning, new mercies we see. All we have needed, your hand has provided. Great is your faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Thank you for the precious gift of your son. It is only in Christ that I have come to understand the the parable of the pearl of great price and why there was a man that was willing to give up everything because of the treasure he had found. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is true. Amen.